when Sarah and I first started dating, we did what every new couple does. They pass notes and give letters to one another. And, and of course, when we first started writing notes to one another, uh, those notes that she would give me ended with Sarah, maybe a little smiley face at the end of it or something like that. Uh, but, but there came a decisive moment where at the end of her letter, it didn't just say Sarah. It said, love Sarah. With the addition of one little word, this new letter had a whole new meaning. Her letters were far from being formal. They never were, but there was no sincerely or formally yours or anything like that at the end. Her letters were were always friendly, but by the time it said, love Sarah, it wasn't formal, it wasn't friendly, it was a love letter. And so that one little word, love, is the furthest thing from a throwaway word. And as we come to the end of Peter's letter as well, we may be tempted to treat these words as throwaway words. There are a lot of familiar elements to Peter's conclusion with other letters that we see throughout the New Testament. There's a greeting from other believers to the believers to whom Peter is writing. There's a comment about the letter's carrier and a final blessing. And you might think, well, there's not a whole lot there to that. And so we may be tempted to gloss over these words quickly. But unlike the ending of most of your emails that end up in the trash, these are no throwaway words. In fact, there isn't any throwaway word in 1 Peter. These final words are precious as they tightly summarize the entirety of this letter. They're precious because they provide insight into the purpose for why Peter was writing in the first place. And here in these final words, Peter gives us an all-encompassing command. Let's read them. Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And there it is. There's the command. Stand firm in all that I have written to you about, Peter said. Because of our status as exiles in the world, we might be tempted to abandon the faith. The constant suffering that we would experience on account of Christ, not to mention the temptations that we would face in the world because of our own indwelling sin that remains, may cause us to seek peace and pleasure through friendship with the world. And so to this, Peter calls his readers and us this morning as well to stand firm. Stand firm in all that I have written, Peter says. And Peter's letter, his words can be summed up in one of two categories. And he says it in verse 12. He's written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. These two words help summarize the two categories that we've been talking about throughout the course of this letter. Gospel truths, you'll remember, and the gospel behaviors that that Peter has laid out for us. The gospel truths, of course, being the truths to which he has declared And the gospel behaviors being the instructions that he has exhorted. So I see two points in this one verse. We're to stand firm in what Peter has exhorted and to stand firmly in what he has declared. So let's consider these one at a time. First, let us consider what it means to stand firm in holy exhortation. First of all, it's helpful for some of us to know what an exhortation is because it's not a word we would use very often. So kids, if your mom tells you to make your bed or eat your vegetables or or to brush your teeth, she's exhorting you. She's urging you to do something. That's what an exhortation is. It's a strong encouragement to do 
something. And throughout the course of this letter, Peter is giving all kinds of exhortations to us. And by the end of the letter, I hope you understand that every sphere of your life is under the dominion of God as he has given us exhortation after exhortation. How you respond to a person when they cut you off in traffic on a Friday at five o'clock has everything to do with what Peter has exhorted us to do. Peter said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. How you might treat your wife when you are spent after a long day of work has everything to do with what Peter has exhorted you. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What you think or say about the president has everything to do with what Peter has exhorted you. Be subject to the Lord's for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Even in the longings and the desires that we have in life, whether it's a, a longing for a spouse, the desire for a new car, or the hope that we'll have a restful Thanksgiving weekend, all of our desires are even to be shaped by, by Peter's exhortation when he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God. That will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So from our private thoughts to our public actions and everything in between, everything is to be brought into conformity to what he has exhorted. He says it this way as well, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you, that word urge is again the same word actually as exhort. I urge you, the sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter's letter throughout it is full of all kinds of practical instructions on how we are to live as exiles. But all of his exhortations can be summed up, I think, in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. He says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's why I said that we're to stand firm in holy exhortation. Because all of the commands that he has given, all the, the urging and encouragement that he has given us to live can be summed up in that one word. Be holy, as he is holy. Now that, that command to be holy looks like being different from that of the rest of the world. That's what, what makes us holy. It, it simply means to be set apart, to be different from the rest. Being holy means that our new life in Christ doesn't resemble the old life that we once lived when we were ignorant of the goodness of God. Now, now of course, on this side of heaven, it is impossible for us to be sinless. But though it is impossible to be sinless here and now, it doesn't mean that we're to continue in sin. So being holy means that over the course of our life, we will look like our Lord and Savior from one degree to another. We will be conformed more and more into his likeness. We will look like God, who himself is holy. So another way we can put it then is that we are to imitate Christ, who himself is the sinless man. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's what it looks like to be holy. It looks like imitating Jesus, who is, who is the perfect sinless man. 
But here in 1 Peter 2, 21 lies the difficulty with standing firm in Peter's exhortation as well. We're not just called to imitate Christ in holy conduct, but we're also called to suffer with Christ. In other words, being holy in the world is typically accompanied with being hated by the world. And so Peter's call to stand firm here in this exhortation becomes all the more necessary when we consider the suffering that you experience on account of Christ as exiles in the world. You are a stranger to this world, are you not? And you will be hated because the world hates Jesus. You will suffer on account of Christ. And so all the more, I hope you see the necessity of standing firm in what he has exhorted. You are an exile here in the United States. This is not your home. An exile in Washington and Vancouver or Battleground or wherever you might call home. You are a stranger to this world. And when you suffer as an exile, you might be tempted to, to settle in, to make yourself comfortable, to make this place your home. You might be tempted to conform to the pattern of the world. But when you're tempted... Be resolved like Daniel was. Be resolved to stand firm in holiness. But where is the source of such resolve? Where does one find the strength to be firm even in the face of persecution? Well, hopefully by now you know that the gospel behaviors are simply the overflow, the abundance of what comes from having received the gospel truths that Peter has declared. And these truths are the heart of what Peter has written. Listen again to verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So let us consider now then what it means to stand firm in the true declaration that he has laid before us. When you suffer on account of Christ, when the trials that come your way cause you to doubt that you are in fact within the, the good grace of God, you need a place to go to, a firm foundation to, to put your feet upon that'll keep you from slipping when the storm comes. And so when you face trials, go to the timeless truth that do not change. Go to the timeless truth that Christ died and rose again. Go to the timeless truths that tell us that Christ died for sinners and all who believe in him will receive eternal life. These are the truths, the foundations that Peter has declared, the foundation from which all the, the gospel behaviors, all, all the exhortations flow from. So let me distinguish just a moment what the difference is between exhortation and declaration. Exhortation, as we've said, is the act of telling someone, urging someone to do something. But to make a declaration is quite different. To declare something is to announce what simply is. Let me illustrate it this way. Over the course of the summer, my four-year-old has taken to wearing shorts. But now summer is over, and since we are having cooler days, his mom will urge him, exhort him, to wear long pants. So the exhortation goes something like this. Son, you need to wear long pants. That's the exhortation to which our son is often resistant and so he needs to know what the ground is 
what the reason is, what needs to be declared to him for why he should wear long pants. Son, wear long pants because it's cold outside. There's the declaration. It's cold outside. It's not a matter of opinion, though some would choose to argue with it, but it's a reality that could be seen by looking out your front window and seeing the frost on the lawn. It's a reality that is going to be felt when my son's bare legs touch the cold seat that's in the car. So Peter, he's exhorted us how to live, but the exhortation is based on the foundation of what he has declared to us, the gospel truths that have been made clear. And he says this, he's declared in verse 12 that this is the true grace of God. Now here's the temptation for us. We, we look around at reality. We look at what we see and what we see is suffering for righteousness sake. And when you suffer, you will probably feel like you are outside of God's grace. When you are mocked because of being a, a Christian, because of your views on same-sex, so-called same-sex marriage, you might be tempted to believe that God has abandoned you. When you get fired from your job because you stand for the sanctity of life, you might feel as though God's wrath itself is being poured out on you. When you suffer for the sake of Christ, you may be tempted to abandon the faith and conform to the world. Surely God's grace would not lead to suffering. Well, such reasoning was the reasoning of Job's friends when they tried to make sense of his suffering. Eliphaz told Job, trying to make sense of why Job suffered, he said, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off as i have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same by the breath of god they perish and by the blast of his anger they are consumed such wisdom such rationale is the thinking of men who do not understand the mysteries of god now, of course, it's worth noting that not all suffering is a result of persecution. And Peter has made it this clear to us just as well when he said that we should not suffer as murderers or thief or evildoer or as a meddler in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 15. But, but Peter wants us to know, though, though we would suffer, though the wicked will certainly suffer, he wants us to be able to distinguish the difference between suffering for sin and suffering for righteousness' sake. And so, friends, if you are suffering for the sake of Christ, do not be deceived into thinking that you have somehow displeased God. Don't go to thinking that you have somehow fallen away from his grace. Peter has declared to us what the true grace of God is. And the true grace of God does not look like living your best life now. In fact, Peter has told us com the complete opposite. He told us this, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is the indication that you are, in fact, within the true grace of God. When you are insulted for the name of Christ, it is because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you, and what people see in you is not just a person. What they sense is Christ in you, and they hate Christ. And so they will hate you because you represent Christ. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a present reality. And it is an indication that you are, in fact, standing in the true grace of God. 
though it is counterintuitive and you might seem to doubt that you are in fact in the true grace of God, that might cause you to think that you should, you should find comfort and, and peace elsewhere. Don't do it, friends. Let me illustrate it again like this. Kids, if you were told by your mom, pack up your swimming suit, you're going swimming. You might look out the window and again see the frost covering the lawn and think, mom has lost her mind. But her suggestion would not be so crazy if you knew that what she intended was to, to take you and the rest of the family to fly to visit the tropical beaches of Cancun in the morning. You see, it's not always as clear what the intention will be by the end of it. Peter has in view of something that cannot simply be seen by looking out your front window. In fact, he's looking beyond what can be seen here in the world. He said this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and following. In this you rejoice. There's joy, he says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, it's, what he's describing there is something that we can't see. What we see is the trial. What we, treat, what we see is the suffering. What we don't see is Christ. What we don't see is the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And so how can we, or much less Peter, be so certain about what he is declaring? Well, Peter did see something. He told us about it in 1 Peter 5. He said he was a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Why did Peter believe that he would be a partaker in this future glory that he himself has yet to taste of? Answer, because he saw Christ suffer. And not only this, but he saw Jesus resurrected from the grave on the third day. This is the confidence that Peter has, and this is the confidence that he wants you and I to have just as well. 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is, is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. There it is. There's the rejoicing. Though for not a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the te tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How did Peter know that he would be receiving the glory with all the saints who believe in Jesus Christ? He knew it because Jesus was alive and he saw him and he ate with him and he heard from him. He was a witness of, of the true reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And so he's a witness, declaring the true grace of God, that Jesus died and rose again, and all who believe in him will be resurrected with him on that last day. This is the true grace of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ shows us that, that the resurrection isn't just a, 
a subjective opinion that men came up with. The resurrection from the dead is not an old-fashioned idea that, that, that Peter himself and the other apostles invented. No. What he has declared is, is objective. It's true. More true even than the chair that is underneath of you. And Peter's exhortations then are grounded upon the reality of that truth. That Christ rose from the dead and he will return to judge all people. And so Peter exhorts us then to stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in what he has declared and stand firm in what he has exhorted. Stand firm in the teaching of Peter, not just the teaching of Peter for that matter, but the teacher of all the faithful servants who have delivered the same message to us. Oh, we have such a great need for First Peter and for other, others who also would testify to the very same thing. You see, without Peter's declaration of the truth, we would surely wander from it. And so we need this message and we need also other faithful messengers who will bring this message to us, which brings us to the next point. You see, throughout the closing of this letter, Peter is given this corporate language, very familiar language with other names of, of, of dear loved ones. Verse 12, he talks about Silvanus, calls him a faithful brother. Silvanus now is the same man that we know as Silas from the book of Acts. Silvanus was likely the one who carried Peter's original letter to the exiles of the dispersion. As the letter carrier, Silvanus would not have just been the one to, to bring it to them, but he would also have been able to give any clarity to questions. Well, well what, if, what if the emperor really is evil? What if it's Nero? Are you really talking about Nero? Yes, he's probably talking about Nero. I, I actually talked with Peter about this. Silvanus would have been the first one to actually preach this letter then and to explain it to the hearers. Hence Peter's commendation of him, not just a greeting from, from Silvanus, who's way back in Rome, but, but his commendation of Silvanus as a faithful brother. And so we should see here our need for faithful messengers of this true grace of God. But we also get a sense of the comfort that can be received from other saints. Look at verse 13 and 14. He says this, She who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends greeting to you, as does Mark my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, most commentaries agree that the lady at Babylon is the church in Rome. The lady, of course, referring to the bride of Christ, that being the church. And that, that, that lady in Babylon, that language there is, is probably Peter drawing from the Old Testament exile imagery where the people of God were brought away into exile. So Rome then would have been the very epicenter of exile and Peter himself would have been in Rome. So it makes sense that the lady at Babylon is, in fact, the church in in Rome. And Mark here as well is, is most likely John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And for those who are curious about this, makes the connection for why Peter was likely the source, the primary source for Mark's Gospel. And so then Peter gives us one last command in verse 14, that we are to greet one another with the kiss of love. So what should we make with all this information about Silvanus having carried this letter from Rome to the exiles and the dispersion? And about the church there in Rome giving greetings to the other believers to which this letter came to. And the, the local church itself gathering together, greeting one another with this kiss of love. Well, I'm going to group all this together under this heading. We are to stand firm in brotherly affection. 
And I have four brief points of application that I've, I'm going to draw from these few verses. And I'm going to be brief about it. Let me give the first two applications. And the first two applications have to do with how we relate to the universal church. For those who don't know, the universal church is the term that we use to refer to every believer in every place throughout all time, past, present, and future. Here we see this letter is brought to these Christians, these local congregations by Silvanus, and then, of course, the other Christians in Rome to whom Peter would have been familiar with sent greetings as well. So, so how then do we relate to other believers? Well, first I want us to know this. We are not the only faithful Christians. We might be tempted to think that we are all alone in exile, all by ourselves on this island out in the world. But that would be a huge mistake. For starters, we are preceded by many generations of faithful believers who have passed along the faith to us. Just as Silvanus himself passed along this true grace of God, this letter of Peter to these exiles, so too we are recipients of this true grace of God from many others. And so we should learn from them. And not only that, but we should even imitate them as they themselves imitate Christ. And more than this, we also need to understand that we are not the only faithful church in this generation, nor are we the only faithful church in Vancouver. So that's the first point of application I want us to consider. We are not the only faithful Christians. And second to that now, I want us to consider that we are not the only Christians, much less the first Christians, to suffer as exiles. What a great encouragement it would have been for these believers to hear the report of a faithful church located in Rome, where the persecution would have likely been far more severe than anywhere else in the world. Or in our case, there is great encouragement for us to be had when we hear of reports of other churches in other places of the world where it is, in fact, the epicenter of exile. Places like China, North Korea, and India. I look forward to hearing a report from our brother Brian to hear about the church in Cuba and what encouragement it can be for us to see Christians who are persevering in their faith, though there are great trials that would you would think would be like a bucket of cold water onto their zeal for the Lord. And when you, what you hear about what's happening around the world, it makes it really hard for us to consider our suffering for righteousness' sake to even be persecution. But what a great encouragement it is to hear and see of what Christ himself said, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so first, we need to recognize that we aren't the only faithful believers. Second, we need to recognize that we aren't the only believers to suffer. And now let's turn our attention to verse 14 and focus specifically on our relationship with one another as a local church. Not the universal church anymore, but now we're talking about our relationship with our brothers and sisters here in Living Water Church. Peter exhorts every congregation to, to which this letter was brought to and read. He, he, he tells them to greet one another with the kiss of love. Peter moves from the, the greetings from the church at Rome, and now he's commanding us as a local assembly to greet one another with the kiss of love. So what should we make of this kiss of love? Jesse said, stand firm and pucker up is what he told me earlier. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, you see, kissing, kissing one another on the cheek, the forehead, and, and the hands would have been a customary way of greeting one another when this letter was first written. Uh, greeting one another with a kiss is certainly a common way of greeting one another, even throughout the world today as well. But it's very countercultural to us. And, and uh, though we shouldn't discredit it altogether, I don't think that would be necessarily wise to just go, no, this isn't for us because we're Americans. Uh, I, I'm sure that it wouldn't be appreciated if you went and kissed your brothers and sisters after service. So I, I don't know that that's the application for us this morning. But let's get to the heart of the matter. Two applications from this one command. First of all, this one command implies something. That they are able to even greet one another implies that they are continuing to gather with one another. So even in the midst of great suffering and persecution, church, let us continue to meet together. Oh, we are far more tempted to to take a, a day off from gathering when our football team is playing football, or perhaps when life gets busy because of extracurricular activities or, or holidays. But friends, if we're going to stand firm in the faith, if we're going to stand firm in the truth that is declared, if we're going to stand firm in the exhortation, then we need one another. So let us not forsake this gathering much less any other gathering for that matter. But let's make it a common practice that we, we gather together even throughout the week and greet one, one another and remind one another of the gospel truths and exhort one another in the gospel behaviors. But then there's the final application that I see from this text as well. This kiss of love is an expression of sincere love from one another. It's not merely a handshake. You, you, you shake the hand of a stranger. But what's being described here in this kiss of love is a, an expression of, of deep, deep affection. And so maybe it looks like a handshake, a holy handshake, not a common handshake. But even more appropriate, perhaps, what this might look like for us is a warm, affectionate, brotherly hug. Now, I was talking to Tate about this just before the service as well, and he shared some concern with this part of my sermon, and so he asked me to remind you all that he is not a hugger. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, even hugging can get quickly out of hand. A few years ago, I was at a community group. When a young single man came into that group, he was a stranger to the group, and he proceeded to hug every individual lady in that group, but didn't seem to share the same affection for the men. And this is the furthest thing from what I have in mind when I talk about greeting another with, one another with a, a hug or a handshake or any kind of affection. Peter is not talking about romantic love here in this kiss of love. He, this is a, a brotherly love that we are to have one another. I didn't even talk to John Seavey about this, but I'm reminded of the, the warm brotherly hugs that John Seavey gives me every single time I see him. That's the kind of love that we're to express one another through this this kiss or hug or however you want to greet one another. It's to be one of affection, genuine affection, deep affection. See, we need one another if we're going to stand in the faith. And if we are, in fact, standing in the faith, then we will most certainly love one another as well. John says it this way, 1 John 3, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you're here this morning and you don't love your brothers and sisters, John's telling you something. 
He's saying you don't actually belong to God. Peter himself has exhorted us to the same end. Chapter 1, verse 22, he said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. If you have in fact been born again, you will have a sincere brotherly love for the people in these same chairs and perhaps even the one across the room from you. So let us stand firm with one another in love and in faith and in conduct as we have been exhorted to. So now we come to the end of Peter's letter. Peter's declared to us the truth and he's exhorted us in the way that we should go. Peter's letter is over. But our exile is not. And I hope you see that loud and clear as he's calling us to stand firm. The letter is done, but we still have a life to live here in exile. And so we must stand firm. You know, you might compare the entirety of this letter to the speech that a king or a general will give his troops before they go into battle. I think about Theoden's speech, King Theoden, the Lord of the Rings. Before they went into battle, he said this, Arise, arise, riders of Rohan, fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter, spears shall be shaken, shields shall be splintered, a sword day, a red day before the sun rises. Ride now, ride to Gondor. You see the troops before they go into battle, they know what's about to come. They know what lies ahead of them is difficulty and bloodshed and suffering and pain. And so the troops might be tempted then to retreat from battle. And so the king, he rouses the troops. And though the king's speech is over, the battle still lies ahead. So too, Peter's battle speech is over. He's given us this charge that we stand firm. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in holiness, even when you would suffer for it. Stand firm with one another in love. Peter's letter is finished. His battle speech is done. But the battle is not over, for we are still exiles. And we can expect hardship and suffering along the way. And we will be tempted to give up in the faith. But brothers and sisters, let's not do that. But instead, let us stand firm. But there is a notable difference between Peter's battle speech and the battle speech of kings and generals. You see, a king will strengthen his troops with words and rouse them to action and valor, though he nor anyone else knows what the outcome of the battle will be. <laughs> will we win the battle? Even if we do win the battle, will I live to see the victory? Such questions or comforts cannot be answered or offered by a king or a general. But the same is not true for us. We know what the outcome of our exile will be. We know what lies at the end of our trial and even our death. We know that because Christ has been raised from the grave, we too will be resurrected with him. 
And so Peter, he closes us with this final benediction. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All the suffering that we are to to experience in the days and years ahead are going to cause us to be restless and cause us to be longing for peace. And there might be the temptation to look for peace here in friendship with the world. The peace, the path of peace might look clear as to be that of apostasy. But instead, may our sufferings cause us all the more to long for Christ's return. Peace will not be had in the world, brothers and sisters. Peace is only to be found in Christ. And the peace that Peter sends is an exclusive peace. It is not peace for the world, but it is peace for those who are in Christ. Those who are not in Christ, those who do not stand firm in the truth, those who do not stand firm in holiness should not expect to receive peace. Isaiah 48 says, there is no peace for the wicked. You see, the wicked will find no real nor lasting peace here in this life. And then at the end of this life, of course, we know that the wicked will receive eternal torment in hell. So if you're searching for peace, know there is only one place where peace is found, and that is in Christ who himself is the Prince of Peace. And these are not the options of mine, nor are these the outdated ideas of Peter. No, this is the truth, the true grace of God that he has declared that Christ died and rose. Peter's an eyewitness to these events, and he has declared to us what is true. And so he has exhorted us to live according to the truth. As for those who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you have a living hope. And may that living hope give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Let me close with the words of our Lord. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth that you have preserved for us, the truth that we have received through your word and the comfort that we have in Christ. Lord, we do thank you for sending your son to die in our place, to suffer so that we might live. I do pray that we would stand firm there in that truth and that our whole life would be lived in accordance to the truth of the gospel and the transformed life that you have given us by the blood of your Son. I pray that your Spirit would give us strength for today. And Lord, I pray that we would come back to you even tomorrow and every day afterwards to receive new strength, new grace from you so that we might have peace even now. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.